Welcome to the After Talk at Universe University. Today, we have the privilege of speaking with a very prominent guest in the field of manned space exploration, Professor Alex Rowland, a man who, among other things, once served as an early NASA historian. Decades ago, he made some comments about the space shuttle program that were downright prophetic. Some say his views on human space exploration are rather negative, but in our present age of grandiose dreams of space exploration, perhaps we need the voice of a pragmatic realist now more than ever. Join us today as we speak with Professor Alex Rowland. Thank you for coming on the program. It's a, an honor to have you here. It's my pleasure. Uh, I understand you were a historian for NASA very early on in your career, and you've since moved on to other things. Can you uh, walk us through how that particular uh, career path came about uh, in your life? Sure. I um, My undergraduate uh, training was in engineering, but I was always more interested in the humanities and the social sciences. So I had a, went to the Naval Academy and had a service obligation of four years. And when I completed that, I, I had done a master's degree while I was in the service on my own time. And then I went to Duke to do a PhD in military history. So that was in 1970 I started that PhD program. And I was pretty much finished in 1973, went on the job market, and it was a terrible time to be advertising yourself as a military historian because we were in the last stages of the Vietnam War. American universities and colleges were turning against everything military, and there were simply no academic jobs. But I did, through connections with my mentors, um, get notification of a job at NASA, and the NASA historian, the NASA historian, was uh, giving up his duties running the history program there to write a history of the creation of NASA, and he was looking for a young PhD like me uh, to help him on that project. And so I passed myself off as a historian of technology, both because I had an undergraduate degree in engineering and because my dissertation topic had been on a technological issue, and went to work for him in 1973 at NASA headquarters in Washington. And I stayed there until 1981, in other words, roughly during the period of the development of the space shuttle, though I was working on for several years on that project on the origins of NASA, and then I took over another book project um, on the history of NASA's predecessor agency, the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, and I was just seeing that book manuscript uh, go through the publication process when my mentor at Duke, where I'd done my 
retired, and that was my dream job, and I was fortunate enough to be chosen to succeed him. So I went back to Duke in 1981 to teach military history and the history of technology, but not necessarily space history. And my interests were much broader than that recent American history of the space program. And so I, I drifted off to other topics, but never entirely left the orbit of aerospace history. Was that an exciting time to be working at NASA so soon after uh, the first moon landing and the Apollo program? It was, it was just heaven for historians because the engineers who pulled off the Apollo program, of course, knew that they had done something really historic and they wanted to talk to the historians to make sure we spelled their names right. And so you could get an interview with anyone at NASA at the drop of a hat if you were coming from the history program. So it was a great time to be there because, of course, it was uh, it was just a triumphant uh, period for NASA. They pulled off one of the greatest technological feats in all of human history. Um, but they were also having their own problems because it was also the time when the Nixon administration told them in no uncertain terms that they should not expect to have Apollo-level funding in the future. That is, that that was a one-off, one-time event uh, from very special circumstances, and NASA should not expect to repeat it. And, of course, NASA had been planning since 1969 by following the Apollo program with a manned mission to Mars. And the Nixon administration would have none of it. And so NASA was trying in the years just before I got there, really, to sell the Nixon administration on uh, what they called the next logical step. And by that, they meant that the nation's goal should be a manned mission to Mars. And if the nation was not prepared to commit to that in the way they committed to Apollo, then NASA would propose a series of logical steps leading to a manned mission to Mars. And those logical steps were you would need a space station as kind of a staging platform in orbit for the manned mission to Mars and to uh, build and service that space station, we had to have a more practical launch vehicle than the massive Saturn vehicle that powered the Apollo program. That was simply too big and expensive uh, for a long-term project of building and servicing a space station. And so they introduced the notion of a reusable launch vehicle uh, which they expected or they predicted would reduce launch costs by as much as 90, and the administrator even said at one time 95%. In other words, the shuttle would put payload in orbit for 5 or 10% of the cost of putting payload in orbit using the Saturn launch vehicle. And that was the argument that basically sold the shuttle and got the agreement, 
And so just as I was arriving there, that agreement was being hammered out, and um, the eight years I spent at NASA were largely the years of building the shuttle. And that was an interesting time to be there as well. So the shuttle development was unfolding at this time, but as a historian, I would imagine a lot of your focus was still in the things that happened a few years prior at NASA, correct? Oh, yeah, and and more than that, in fact, I was the only one, the joke around the history office was I was the only one that had a really historical topic. I was writing about NASA's predecessor agency, which went back to World War I to 1915, um, and all the rest was current events. But nonetheless, the history office, the history program, was uh, funding a number of contract histories, which were about um, the origins of the space agency after Sputnik in 1958, and then some of the early projects of the space agency. So while I had my own research project on the pre-existing agency, the other work of the history office was very much concentrated on NASA's recent achievements. So uh, you mentioned space shuttle costs. Um, We know now in hindsight that those cost savings estimates were sort of wildly off the mark. Um, They were indeed wildly off the mark, right. Do you think that uh, NASA sort of oversold uh, those estimates? Do you think there was a genuine belief that a reusable vehicle would be drastically cheaper or that in order to secure funding, they sort of uh, tried to come up with the best, if not the most realistic, sales pitch? Yeah, they they engaged a sales pitch which was as old as the Department of Defense called buying in. And defense contractors have been doing this for decades. That is, um, you promise um, a deliverable product at a certain time and at a certain cost and with certain specifications of its capabilities. And then you start developing it. And lo and behold, you find it's actually going to take longer and cost more and probably achieve less than you first said. But by then, the Congress and the administration have bought into it. In other words, they have so many sunk costs in this big project that they dare not let it fail. And so you'll get the funding to make up the difference. And it seems pretty clear to me that whether or not NASA consciously sat down and said, we should engage in buying in, that's what they were doing. And it was a pretty familiar Washington scam in the age of the military industrial complex. It was being done all the time. And furthermore, there's a certain reasonableness about this because the big weapons programs that the Department of Defense was doing were like um, the big space programs that NASA was doing. Nobody really knew exactly how to do these things. They required more research and development. And so it was almost impossible to predict with any accuracy how much they were really going to cost. But having allowed them that, it's nonetheless true that they were also, they were always lowballing the cost and they knew that they were lowballing it. There's a, there's a, 
and they already had the specification that it it had to be done uh, within that time limit and those constraints and bring the astronauts back alive. So it was pretty well defined, except for the dollar amount. So the NASA experts concocted the dollar amount, and as the story goes, the NASA administrator, James Webb, who was a... Uh, a Washington veteran and a former director of the Bureau of the Budget, when he was going up on Capitol Hill to present the number, he simply decided, based on his experience in Washington, to double it. And so the the estimate that he gave was $25 billion in 1960s dollars, and that turned out to be almost exactly right. Now, whether or not that's really true, it suggests that Somebody as wise in the ways of Washington as Jim Webb was knew that he would never have as much political capital to get money out of Congress as he had right then because the the country was committed to this bold new enterprise. So he decided that instead of lowballing it, he was going to set a figure that he wouldn't have to be explaining away and changing as the years passed. But whatever, uh, the Apollo program was one of the few programs that NASA ever had that came in on budget. And that story might help explain why it came in on budget. It's quite an ironic contrast to think of one program where they're drastically overestimating the costs and another another program where they're drastically underestimating the costs, and both for political reasons. And both for political reasons, that's exactly right. But Webb knew enough to realize that um, the reason the Department of Defense and NASA lowball their program estimates is that if they didn't lowball them, they would never get approved. But, but Webb realized that there was so much political uh, pressure in support of this program that he had more leverage then than he was ever likely to have for the remainder of the program, and he better take advantage of it. So uh, American space shuttle enthusiasts might well say that, well, perhaps it wasn't the perfect vehicle, but in hindsight, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. But you were actually uh, one of the first, as far as uh, I can tell in my research, one of the first people to clearly criticized the program, and that was in the uh, early 1980s, even before the Challenger disaster. Um, well, I, yes, but it was the late 1980s. In other words, I, I was invited by Discover Magazine to write an article on shuttle development, and, and it wasn't for any particular purpose. It wasn't supposed to be an expose or anything, but they just wanted somebody to tell the average intelligent reader or how the shuttle got developed and I thought that was a really interesting question so I started researching it and that's when I found out that the shuttle development was really fraught throughout its history and that there had actually been a NASA engineer on the staff Abe Silverstein who told uh, NASA when it was first proposing the shuttle, that it could not possibly, that is, it was physically impossible for the shuttle to do 
what they were promising it was going to do. And they should, in other words, it wasn't just that they were lowballing the cost, they were promising physical performance specifications that were impossible. And his, the simple form of his logic is this. He said that if you take any launch vehicle, half of the cost of that launch is just overhead. And so it's all the people and the facilities and everything you know that you need to run a launch. And he says it has nothing to do with the fuel or if it's an expendable vehicle, the actual cost of the vehicle itself, that half the cost of the launch was overhead. And so you cannot possibly promise to reduce the cost of a launch by 90%. It means you would, you would have nobody working on doing the launch. And of course, his argument was much more fully drawn out and itemized by this. But nonetheless, it was very clear that it, they had a point and they ignored him. They would not pay any attention to what he said. So he wrote it up and published it as an article. It was out there in the public press and nobody paid any attention that NASA was promising something that was physically impossible. That is, everybody wanted it to work and nobody cared very much uh, whether it did or not. NASA was the only one that wanted this shuttle and the military services were happy with their expendable launch vehicles because they didn't worry about costs very much. But NASA was the one that had to find some way to save money on costs. And I found out about all this when I was researching the article for Discover Magazine, and I furthermore found out that in shuttle development, they were experiencing terrible technical problems that they had not really solved yet. So I wrote an article that laid out this argument and predicted that the shuttle, the shuttle program, as it was coming into service, was unsustainable. That is, it could not do what NASA said it was going to do. And that article, it just so happened, came out just two months before the Challenger accident. And so Challenger, and they put the shuttle on the cover of Discover Magazine and everything. Um, so it got a fair amount of attention. Interestingly enough, Discover was so pleased with the article that they tried to line me up with a bunch of television and radio interviews about my argument, and they couldn't get me on any television shows. They got me a couple of radio interviews but the argument they heard from all of the producers of that show is, who cares about the shuttle? You know, that's, that's not very interesting. And to boot, the shuttle is working, and we're not sure we believe this guy. So when it blew up, exactly the opposite reaction happened. People who probably hadn't read the article or hadn't read it closely um, attributed to me, a prediction that the shuttle was going to blow up, and I never predicted any such thing. I just thought the program was going to fail economically for lack of resources. That is, it was just going to run out of money 
because it was much more expensive to run the shuttle than they had promised. So at any rate, I got I got credited with a prophecy I didn't make, but uh, nonetheless, at the time, it is fair to say, I think, that there were only two or three of us in the United States who knew much of anything about the shuttle program who were raising the alarm, uh, mostly the alarm that it just wasn't a good idea because it wasn't likely to achieve what NASA hoped for. That was greatly reducing the cost of getting into low Earth orbit. I would say it's fair to, to credit you with being uh, prophetic in some of your observations, but in terms of cost rather than in terms of uh, maybe vehicle safety. That's right. That's right. I, I remember talking to a friend, at the, a colleague at the National Air and Space Museum, and we both agreed that uh, the shuttle was a pretty dangerous vehicle, but we thought the maximum danger was on landing. That is, that thing had the aerodynamic characteristics of a flying brick, and uh, we thought that they would crash one at one point or another. And, um, you know, the, the pilots on board the shuttle never piloted it. It was all automated piloting, and the landing was fully automated. And they had five computer systems on board to monitor that landing and back each other up but that was those were back in primitive days for computers like that and in fact i'd learned in my research that their computer systems were one of the things that they had trouble um designing and operating and that they were worried about whether they would really work that well so i did think it had some Danger, more danger associated with it than NASA was admitting, but I didn't think that was the major problem. I thought it would fail economically before it failed physically. So considering um, all of that, do you think that was the reason why you were called to testify before Congress in uh, the early 2000s after the uh, Columbia disaster? On, on several things, but when I testified about the shuttle program, that was um, that was the notion. That is that what went wrong was predictable, and some of us had been predicting it. And why didn't NASA respond? And of course, they didn't respond because, um, well, it it would confess that their whole plan for the future of NASA and American spaceflight was flawed. In other words, they had come to believe institutionally by the end of the Apollo program that manned spaceflight was the key program in America's future in space. The American public did not care about you know, Earth applications and science research and whatnot. And truth be told, Congress didn't care much either. But everybody loved the astronauts. And so if you wanted to retain 
public and congressional support for NASA, you had to build the future of the space program around a series of manned space spectaculars. And if the next manned space spectacular, the shuttle, was a programmatic failure, that is, it it just didn't work or it didn't do what they had predicted, which was to reduce launch costs by a staggering percentage, then it jeopardized NASA's whole future. And they believed that it jeopardized America's future in space. So they were they were very driven to hold to the narrative that they had built up. I remember once interviewing um, the director of the Bureau of the Budget, and it was his job every year to sit with the president when each agency came in to propose their budget requests for the following fiscal year. And he said all agencies were about the same. They came in, you know, and they were tweaking their numbers and sort of spinning their rationales and everything. But he said NASA came in and just lied. It was the only agency in the federal government. They just flat out lied about their numbers. And I think that was a reflection of the sort of problems they created for themselves by believing that manned space flight just had to work and it had to be somehow practical, which it, 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 it it's worked to a certain extent, but it's never been a practical thing to do. Some have uh, probably criticized you for being uh, certainly anti-space shuttle and anti-manned uh, spaceflight or even just anti-space technology in general. Um, you're probably, right. to my understanding, uh, certainly skeptical about the utility of manned spaceflight, but it's not, it's, I don't think it's fair to say that you are opposed to um, space exploration or space technology by any means. Would that be a, a fair assessment? Yeah. is a loaded term because when NASA uses it, they mean manned space exploration. And they keep making these arguments, you know, that you don't have real exploration in the historic sense we think of unless you have people on board. When you send out an automated or remotely controlled spacecraft, that's not exploration. They don't talk very much about what they think it is, but it's not exploration. And I argue just the opposite. You get more exploration with automated and remotely controlled spacecraft than you do with manned spacecraft. Because as soon as you put people on a spacecraft, you transform the purpose. Whatever exploration purpose you have, you had going into it, becomes secondary. The primary purpose is keeping the people on board safe and bringing them back alive. And keeping them safe and bringing them back alive is what is so damn expensive. Um, And this was early in sort of the... NASA got started on this trajectory early in the kind of age of computers and automation and miniaturization. And... Um, 
those fields have progressed so rapidly that we can send into space incredibly sophisticated uh, mechanisms to explore and measure and investigate and look and measure and weigh and do all the other things that you want to do to find out what the surface of the moon is like or what faraway stars are like and everything. We don't need people there because machines can now see better and hear better and feel better. And machines can even taste and smell better than people can. So there is no need for the people on board. The people on board dramatically increase the cost and lower the efficiency of spacecraft that are trying to explore. So my argument is I'm not against exploration. I'm just against putting people on board because they're superfluous. They contribute little and cause to whole whole lot. One of the arguments that people bring up, and I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring it up myself, were these mm-hmm. uh, spinoff technologies that came uh, particularly from the Apollo program and the space race in the 1960s, um, as well as uh, specifically spin-off technologies in modern medicine, uh, magnetic resonance imaging or MRI is one that's often cited. Right, right. Well, I, I have two objections to that. First of all, it is true that you get spin-off from research and development. That is, you can conceivably, and it often happens, that you find other applications for the technologies you're experimenting with when you're trying to develop item A, you get item B. But that's true of all research and development, and it's not a particularly compelling argument for NASA. In fact, if you want to make a better breakfast drink, you're much better off subsidizing a research program in breakfast drinks or Teflon. And uh, matter of fact, Teflon is a wonderful example because that's often credited to NASA. And Teflon was invented decades before NASA even came into existence. So a lot of narratives have been built up around how this high technology agency has produced all these wonderful things with applications in the civilian economy. And the people um, that I know who study this sort of thing uh, don't really agree. They don't see NASA as a particularly fruitful agency for producing spinoff. What NASA did do in order to justify its existence was create a rather elaborate program that turned out glossy reports and magazines and publications about their spinoff, most of which was exaggerated or, um, what would I say, misleading, let's say. I don't think their record in spinoff is all that great, but all agencies that do research and development produce some spinoff. So uh, final thing I wanted to uh, mention was it's my understanding that you would regard a lot of uh, our modern day dreams of space flight, such as manned missions to Mars and another landing on the moon. Of course, the Trump administration wants to do that in 2024, which uh, 
it seems unlikely that it'll happen on that timetable. You regard you regard a lot of that as being um, wildly optimistic, something that a, a manned Mars landing perhaps might not even happen within our own uh, lifetime. Is that correct in, in your assessment? I, yeah, and, and I'm now 75, so I've been saying that for decades now, that it's surely not going to happen in my lifetime. I think I'm safe to predict that it probably won't happen in your lifetime either, and there are two reasons. First of all, it's enormously expensive and complicated um, to do it. And in spite of all of these years flying people in space and keeping them up on the space station and everything, they still haven't solved um, a large number of critical problems about long-term exposure to weightlessness and exposure to radiation in space and the psychological effects of long-term missions and the, um, the, the public relations problem of sending a mission that they can't return safely. That is, there's, there's just an enormous number of missions. So first of all, there's no reason for people to go back to the moon uh, because we've been there and, and done that, and there was nothing there to justify going back. That is, there was no payoff to being on the moon except for the psychological payoff of that magnificent technological achievement. And the second reason is that even if you could imagine a reason for sending people to the moon or sending them to Mars, it would be so expensive that it's almost impossible to imagine the political circumstances, especially in these dark days, when the American public would voluntarily commit themselves to such an expensive and pointless mission. I mean, it wouldn't be entirely pointless, but the the only payoff, the only imaginable payoff at this time is, again, psychological. And one of the great surprises out of the Apollo program was how quickly that psychological satisfaction sort of disappeared. You know, we, people said for many years thereafter, well, if we can send men to the moon, then we can do anything. So it created this ethos that American ingenuity and creativity can do anything we set our mind to. But it should be a project that really is worth doing in its own right. And I can't see any reason for people to go back to the moon, let alone build a colony on the moon, and still less reason to go to Mars or build a colony on Mars. Now, one of NASA's enthusiasms is to find someplace off the Earth where um, life could survive or where life has existed before. And, you know, I don't have anything against that. But if you want to find that out about Mars, say, the best way to do it is send automated and remotely controlled vehicles to search different places around the planet and do the exploration. You don't need the fabulous cost and fabulous risk of sending people to do that, let alone sending them to stay there indefinitely. So 
considering that you were at NASA so soon after the Apollo moon landings, do you think hypothetically in a drastically different political climate under a different administration, if there had been a, a commitment made to send human beings to Mars and, and with an Apollo-like level of dedication and funding that NASA would have uh, attempted it just as they attempted to create a cheap, reusable space vehicle with the shuttle? Yeah, no, I don't think so. In fact, you know, even Kennedy, before he was killed, was looking to get out of the Apollo commitment when he saw what the real cost of that was going to be and what all the other demands on his limited budget resources were. He thought it was a bad idea, and he even proposed in a speech before the United Nations that Russia and the United States should go to the moon together. In other words, he was looking for somebody to share the cost um, and eliminate sort of the Cold War competition. But the reason that the country stayed with the Apollo program um, was because Lyndon Johnson turned it into a tribute to the fallen president. And nobody wanted to take on the political burden of saying, oh, well, Kennedy really wasn't worth all this, and it wasn't such a bright idea to start with, and we don't need to do a tribute to him. Um, So Johnson felt that he couldn't get out of it either. And I don't think for a long-term project of that scale, you could get two administrations in a row to agree to the commitment. This is a wonderful pattern that um, every Republican president since Eisenhower, who has been running for re-election, has promised in their re-election campaign a manned space spectacular. So Nixon promised the space shuttle, and Reagan promised the space station. And both Presidents Bush promised renewed human exploration of the moon and or Mars. And the problem with that is that when your successor comes into office and he has to pay for it, he's not going to pay for a massively expensive project for which his predecessor will get the credit by proposing it and getting it started. So George W. Bush, for example, proposed this grandiloquent, great new adventure in space, manned space like going to the moon and Mars, and he, he envisioned an $11 billion startup cost to get this going, of which he was prepared to take out of his discretionary budget, $1 billion, and then NASA was supposed to get the rest of it from reprogramming existing funds. So even the president who's proposing it uh, isn't willing to put serious money behind his proposal. So it's, it's unimaginable that his successors will keep throwing in money, and the money demands get greater as the program advances. So it's just not in the political cards that in a political system like ours, the country will remain committed to another one of these manned space spectaculars in the absence of some compelling 
rationale for it. That is some compelling reason, and I've never heard one yet. Considering uh, President Kennedy's legacy, uh, do you have any theory on why it's so common for Republicans to propose manned space spectaculars <laughs> rather than Democrats? Yeah, that's a good question, isn't it? It's, there's a wonderful essay uh, called, a uh, historical essay, he said, called Getting Right with Lincoln. And, um, and the argument is that, that every politician since Lincoln has felt obliged to uh, put themselves as a successor to our, perhaps our greatest president. Uh, and, and it's regardless of their political affiliation. You know, Democrats and Republicans do this. Um, and this is something like that, that is like getting right with Kennedy because he was the great inspirational leader. And I think that uh, the Republicans felt that that's all only been done once in the space program, and it was done by a Democratic president, and they have to show that they're visionary and adventurous and daring as well, and they see the future in space just like the great Jack Kennedy did. So I think they're just trying to get to get right with Jack Kennedy. That is absolutely fascinating. <laughs> well, I have uh, one one question to ask before we uh, let you go, as okay. as a, a military historian, so I, I'm going to say that this question has nothing to do really with the space program or the space shuttle, but uh-huh. as a military historian, we don't have military historians on the program very often. We did an episode where we touched on the admittedly fringe topic of UFOs. And Uh the only Uh reason I would ask you about it is because uh, clearly I think the Department of Defense or the United States Air Force in the 1950s had kind of a strange interest, at least within the context of the Cold War, in UFOs. And I wonder if you've ever encountered that or if you have uh, any thoughts on that, because obviously that's become fodder for conspiracy theorists and uh, believers in fringe topics. But as a military historian, uh, I'm sure you've probably heard of Project Blue Book and some of the the other UFO-related topics uh, from that that era. Yeah. Well, I think it was was natural when people started reporting UFOs. Of course, they've been reporting them for a long time, but it, it, it captured, some of the stories captured the public imagination. Um, when that happened, I think it was natural to assign it to the Air Force because you, you need to have some agency that, first of all, has an appreciation of how things move through the atmosphere and what the characteristics of known aerial vehicles are compared to the characteristics of what some people thought they were observing. And also, the Air Force was the that was aware of what the Soviet Union might be doing and whether they might be trying overflights of the United States or they might be putting out new uh, weapons or potential weapons against us. Um, so I think it was logical to assign it to the Air Force, and the Air Force classifies everything. So the fact that they classified it, I don't think necessarily meant 
that there was some great secret that they were trying to keep from the American people. Um, but it's also true that some of the things that were cited were test aerial vehicles that they were running. They didn't want a public discussion about what those tests were like. Uh, so they collected all the information. And then um, I think the interesting phenomenon is that there is a tendency among some people when we can't explain something, instead of saying, well, that's interesting, we can't explain it, but to make up a story around it. And so the people who are making up stories um, just controlled the public stage uh, as to how we would think about these phenomena that were observed but still couldn't be explained. And I'm still inclined to think that's true. I don't, I don't have any brief against um, flying saucers or visitors from other planets or civilizations or whatnot. But um, as best I know, there is no remaining physical evidence from any of these observed phenomena. And I would find the stories much more compelling if, if these visitors had left some physical evidence. So un, until they do, I remain skeptical. I think people really are seeing things um, that we can't explain, but it doesn't necessarily lead to the conclusion that these are visitors from other planets. Yeah, I think you're right to say that we as human beings are uncomfortable having no explanation for something, so we, we construct our own narratives, and I think conspiracy... We just, we just make it up, right? And, and that means it's, it's sort of a sort of competition in the imagination, and, and people can be very creative inventing things out of whole cloth to fit fragmentary evidence. So I think it's a, a wonderful cottage industry, and I have no objection to it, but... I just hope people don't scare themselves too much over it because I don't think there's much to it. Well, I think that's all we have for you, but we wanted to okay. we wanted to thank you for coming on the program and uh, sharing your expertise, and I, I know our, our listeners appreciate it uh, as well. It was an absolute honor, and perhaps uh, someday if we, we, we've covered the space race and sort of these vintage space topics um, from... Project Mercury to Project Apollo and the first moon landings uh, extensively on the program. So perhaps uh, someday we could uh, have you on the program again. I would very much like to do that. I've enjoyed this thoroughly. It's delightful to hear um, uh, people who are still interested in the early history of the space age, and I've enjoyed talking with you about it. Okay. Thank you. All right. Good. Take care, Chris. All right. You as well. Right. Bye-bye.